Well, again, good morning. Glad to have you guys all with us. Uh, man, I, for those of you who knew my past week, you know where I'm going to go with this. Uh, but let me ask a poll question first, just to get a sense of who's sane and who's not. Um, how many of you here would say that January is your all-time favorite month of the year? Okay. We got to talk afterwards because either you have a secret or you're literally insane and you need some help, okay? One of the two. Uh, so <laughs> option two. Okay, so sweet. All right, we, we'll talk. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, so I just, I dislike January. I don't know what it is. There's something about this month that I really don't like. Maybe it's the cold. Uh, maybe it's the dark days. Uh, maybe it's the depression. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But seriously, it's, it's like, it's a hard month. And this past week made it a lot harder because uh, my whole family decided it was a good week to go through the stomach bug. Oh yeah, it was, it was brutal. If you have kids and you've ever watched them go through the stomach bug, you know exactly what my past week was like, but this is kind of how it went down. Tuesday night, uh, and some of you were like, oh no, what's he going to say? All right, Tuesday night, uh, we're getting ready to go to bed and at 10 o'clock, we turn out the lights and like we're ready, like it was just going to be a great night. And then 20 minutes in, this is, this is always how it happens. Like, I think there's a conspiracy out there. There's a couple of things that never rear their ugly head in convenient moments. One of them is the fire alarm. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but the batteries always expire, not during the day, but in the middle of the night. Anybody with me on that one? Like, yeah, fire alarms never go off in the right time. Uh, But sick kids are the other one. It's never during the daytime. You always see the beginning of it right in the middle of the night. And this is how it went down. Uh, 10.30 rolls around and we hear some weird noises going on in the other room. And we walk in there and and it looked like Armageddon had just hit that bedroom, okay? I'm not gonna go into all the graphic details, but uh, we did not go to sleep until about 4 a.m. Uh, because it was round after round, okay? It was ugly, ugly stuff. Now, this week I had all sorts of plans of what I wanted to do with my time in developing our church and our outreach in the city and meeting with people. And some of you know that, that I had to scrap my plans because uh, this past week was just crazy. My kids, my wife, everybody, just stomach bug. And when the stomach bug hits your house, there's very little else you can do, all right? Ugly times. Now, one of the most frustrating parts about the whole experience for me was just how interrupted everything felt. I had, I mean, all sorts of really exciting things that I was going to be a part of that week. Um, And man, I just had to like scrap them all. And uh, no matter what it was, if I tried to get some projects accomplished, there was always some sort of an interruption. Someone saying, hey, daddy, uh, could you get me? uh," Or daddy, I'm about to, uh," you know, and then you like race up the stairs because we have a bathroom on the second floor. And it's just like, it it was a nightmare this week. Anyway, uh, all those interruptions, like it just got me at at the end of the day, kind of in a messed up place. Because maybe moms, you'll understand this. You could do a hundred things in a day. And then at the very end, just kind of think, what in the world did I just do with the day? Did I accomplish anything? Anybody with me on that one? You can do a ton of activities in the day and at the end think, man, did I accomplish anything? Now, look, some of you didn't have sick kids this week, but my guess is you have interruptions that are constantly hitting you all the time. Whether it's emails or notifications on your phone or social media blasts or whatever it is, you've got interruptions constantly. And if you're not careful, man, like all of us can get to the place at the end of the day where we're thinking, I might have done a lot of things, might have seen a lot of things, but did I accomplish anything? Now, in the constant interruptions that we face on a week-in, week-out basis, I was reflecting on my life, at least. It feels like I've got a lot of compartments in my life that sometimes feel very disconnected. You've got your work zone, you've got your home zone, 
You've got your church zone, you've got your kid zone, you've got your me time and you've got the, you know, everything else. And like everything can kind of seem very disjointed and, and disconnected. And again, with all that disconnectedness and compartmentalization and fragmentation that we have on a daily basis, man, it just feels sometimes like, man, what's my life all about? <laughs> Am I accomplishing anything? It's a hard week for me this week, and I kind of got that face-to-face uh, on a, in a big way, but I think a lot of us have felt that way. So here's the big question that we want to wrestle with today. If sometimes our life can feel divided into a lot of different areas, and the focus is constantly being pulled in many different directions, are we accomplishing anything? And how do we kind of give ourselves a framework to see all of life under one lens? Is that possible? I think it is. In fact, I believe that God wants to make every one of us in this room big time difference makers in this world, in all of your routines, in every activity that you do under one banner. And my hope today is to give us a framework to be able to see all of life under one banner and not only make sense of it, but to engage it in a level where, yeah, you might have done a lot of things that day, but at the end of the day, it wasn't like, man, what did I accomplish? It was, look at those opportunities that God gave me, and I did something with that. So that's my hope today. This is where we're going to go. The last couple of weeks, we've been exploring the life of a man named Nehemiah. It's a book in the Old Testament, and if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and pick one up. We got some back there. In fact, if you don't have one with you, you can go ahead and throw your hand up there. We'll get some people who can get you a Bible. Awesome. Can we do that? Yeah, we got a couple of people that are going to be on that right now. Nehemiah is a, a book in the Old Testament. It's right before the giant book of Psalms and Job that, that precedes that. But if you kind of open your Bible in the middle and take a little bit left, you're going to find that little book. It's a small book. Um, but the life of Nehemiah essentially is this. God called a normal, ordinary guy who was working in the Persian Empire to go back and rebuild the city uh, of his people, the Jews, back in Jerusalem. And it was an ordinary guy, but called to an extraordinary purpose. And I believe, uh, and this is why we're going through this, that we are all very ordinary people but we're given an extraordinary calling to make God known and to engage his rescue mission in greater Nashua and beyond. So we're going to ask three things of this story today that we're going to read. Why did Nehemiah choose to go back and rebuild the wall? Why does God want us to rebuild today? Two, who did God choose to rebuild the walls and who does God choose for his work today? And then finally, how did they do it? and find out some implications that we might have for us today as well. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 11 in just a second. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible privilege that we have every single week to do this. God, it still just blows my mind that two years ago this was just a dream, and we didn't have anybody here. Nobody knew each other, and yet here we are. And I believe this is only the beginning of what you're going to do. You're creating a movement of people to love this city and to love this world with the kind of love that Jesus had. And I pray, God, that today would be one more link in the chain of building that kind of kingdom. God, I pray that you open our eyes to your word today to see it as you meant for us to see it. And I pray that our lives would change accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. All right, let's, um, let's dig into the word. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Here we go. 
Nehemiah, and in the context here, he had just been praying. He, he had caught this vision that God wanted him to go back and rebuild the walls of his city that had been torn to pieces and left his whole city defenseless. He'd been praying, God, give me success. He, he went to the king uh, back in Persia that he was working for 800 miles away. And he said, uh, I want you to do this for me. Can you give me supplies to go back? And Josh was articulating this for us last week. And miraculously, the king said, yeah, go ahead and rebuild the city. That was not supposed to happen, but it happened because God's hand was miraculously on him. And here we go. He has now made the long trek over to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And this is where we pick it up on the story. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and after staring, staring there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts uh, with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and, during, and, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. You can get the sense that it's like a super spy initiative, like he's a super sleuth, doesn't want anybody to know about this just yet. The officials, the leaders of the, the city, they had no idea what I was doing because as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing this work. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, you can feel the drama in this moment. He's going and he's scoping out these walls and all the stuff that's about to happen. He's dreaming like a great visionary of what this is going to look like. And there's all this energy, like what can you imagine what all this is going to look like? It's the same kind of feeling that Charity and I had when we came to Nashua before all of this started in this church. You know, we're, we're looking at the city of Nashua and just dreaming, like, look at all the laden potential that's here in this city of what God could do to start a movement. It's just, I mean, it's really exciting stuff, but he doesn't tell anybody because he knows the opposition is great. And if he lets out the word now, there's all sorts of enemies that are going to just, just try to destroy this. And then after he examined it all, verse 17, he says this, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me, all this favor that God gave and all the, the favor that the king had given. And they replied, let's go. Let's, let's start the rebuilding. And so they began the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, official and Geshem uh, the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I, meaning Nehemiah, answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We will start the rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I love that. He said, we're going to do this. I don't care what you say. We are going to rebuild these walls. And I, just an anecdotal note, like what we're doing here and helping God establish his kingdom and his city right here in greater Nashua and beyond, like there's going to be a lot of people that are not going to be for that. But I'm telling you right now, like we're going to rebuild <laughs> and it's going to be awesome. And it's only going to get stronger and greater in the days to come. And I'm excited about that. But Nehemiah does something so critical here. Because you see, there were all sorts of inhabitants that were living in the city of Jerusalem at the time, but even though the walls were totally destroyed and what he does is he calls them back to the real problem. 
And he casts a vision to solve that problem so big and great that the people latch on and say, let's go. And when we read it at first, we're tempted again, and we talked about this week one, two weeks ago, we're so tempted to think that the, the problem was just the fact that the walls were broken down. But when you look at this, the, we get the sense that the problem is much greater than that. When Nehemiah said this, you see the trouble we're in, Jerusalem lies in ruins. If we stop there, it's just circumstances aren't good. Circumstances aren't good. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us be, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and check this out. Why? Let's rebuild and we will no longer be in disgrace. Wow, why does he use that word? If it was just the fact that the walls were broken down, then it, it, he'd be saying, like, we would no longer be vulnerable to the attacks of other people around us. But he doesn't say that. We'll no longer be in disgrace. You see, the problem was not that their circumstances weren't right. It was the fact that the people of God had been covered in disgrace. Why? You see, he was rooting it back into the ultimate problem of what these people had from the very beginning. And the, their problem was this that they had rejected God. They weren't right with him. Hundreds of years earlier, when God had set up the people of Israel to be the people of Israel, he, he called them with a specific task to know him, to be engaged in a relationship with him, and out of that relationship to let the world know about who he is and what it means to, to follow him in this world so that this world could be a place of peace and hope and love, and they just rejected it. They said, no, thank you. I want to create my plans on my own without any reference to God or including him in my life plans. And out of that rejection, God said, I mean, hundreds of years before that, he said, what's going to happen? If you reject me, you're going to get scattered all over the place. And it's exactly what happened. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came and knocked out half the empire in the north. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and knocked out half the empire in the south. And the Jews were scattered all over the place with a, just a remnant of people that, that remained in Jerusalem. And God had said it was going to happen. And Nehemiah referenced it in chapter one. He said, I knew this was going to happen. God, you were faithful, but we weren't. We're in disgrace because we have not been right with you and we have not made your love and your plan for this world right with other people. It's calling them back. Man, you've got to understand the problem. And this is so huge for us. Because when we go through life, man, it's so tempting to think that our circumstances are the real problem. That if I just changed a couple of things on the outside, man, I'd, all my problems would be changed. Like if I just had a bigger bank account, if I had more income, if I had a better job, if I had a better house and better living situation, if I could just change a couple of things on the outside, man, life would be better. But Nehemiah is drawing them back to the, the fundamental, the root of the problem. And he's saying everything stems from this relationship that you have with God. We're not right, guys. That's why we're in disgrace. We're in disgrace and the name and mission of God is in disgrace because we rejected him. Now, this bigger picture that he starts painting as he casts a vision here, rooted in that problem, captures the people and they're saying, yes, let's do this. Let's rebuild. We know that we can. And this is the power of articulating a bigger story, okay? It wasn't the circumstances that needed fixing. It was every part of their life that needed a complete new framework and I, I love this. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Ivan Illich who says this about how to change a society. He says, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new and powerful tale. One so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. 
one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole. We talked about how fragmented and compartmentalized our life can be in so many different directions we can have. He says we've got to have a story that brings everything into one coherent whole, one that shines light on all of this. And he says if you want to change a society, you've got to tell a different story. And Nehemiah is saying this. (laughs) Let's not just rebuild the wall so that our life can change on the surface. Let's rebuild the wall so we can get right with God and let the world know about his incredible plans. Now, something unique happens in this moment in salvation history. We have to understand this because when we read stories like this from the Old Testament, it is so easy to miss what's actually happening here if we don't get the whole story. God has always been in the process of trying to reveal himself to this world through particular people. And this is kind of how it happened. I'll take you through a little bit of a history on this one. The, one that, the way that he tried to do it at the very beginning was actually through individual people. God met with Adam and Eve and wanted to, to let the world know who he was as he revealed himself to them. And then he found a man named Abraham or actually Noah first, and he wanted to reveal himself through a covenant relationship with Noah, and so it was through an individual, through Noah, then it was Abraham, then it was Jacob, all these individual people that he revealed himself to specifically, then to let, him, let them reveal who he is. But the wild thing is it moved from an individual to a particular place. When you follow the history of God's people, the Israelite people, uh, when they were drawn out of slavery from Egypt and then sent on an exodus to go to their own homeland, what ended up happening is he called them to build a tabernacle. As they were journeying through the desert, they built a tabernacle, which was a specific tent that they said, this is where my glory, God said, this is where my glory is going to dwell and people are going to know what it means to get right with me when they come to this particular place. And that tabernacle then eventually transformed into the temple. So it was a particular building in a particular place. But the wild thing is something different happens here. And this is so powerful. It's a precursor to what actually happens when Jesus came and set his community on a radical mission to change the world. In this moment, Nehemiah calls not just the sacred people, the priests or the professional paid God people, He calls everybody to get involved. And God uses everybody. Check this out, ready? Let's start in verse three and we're gonna read just the first five verses. Chapter three of Nehemiah. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests who went to work uh, and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated as far as the tower of Hananel. Now you see like these are the religious guys, okay? So the religious guys are in on this. Then the men of Jericho uh, built the adjoining section and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. You see an entire town that actually got in on this rebuilding process. So it's not just the religious people. It's actually normal people from a particular town. They've to rebuild as well. Then verse three, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. Uh, they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, I can't even pronounce all these names and I'm not even going to try. He then repaired the next section. And next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs next to him. And Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. And the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. So you see so many different people getting involved here. And if you read the rest of chapter three, you're going to see people after people after people and various groups and diverse people who are engaging in this rebuilding process. Now, I don't know about you guys, 
But it's so tempting sometimes to think that the work of God is limited to a particular place and a particular group of people. I think one of the, the hardest things about the, uh, the medieval ages actually was the fact that all these grand, beautiful cathedrals were built. And the people in that time, the, the message so subtle or not so subtle that got sent was, if you wanna do God's work, you've gotta be a monk or a nun and you gotta work in one of those big, ugly stone buildings. And everybody else is excluded from the plan of God. Man, we run into the same issues here, don't we? A lot of New England people, when, when they, when they you know, talk to me and find out that I'm a pastor, there's a couple of wacky reactions, okay? Like, yeah, this, it's so funny. And when, when, when I'm on a plane, uh, especially, this is what happens. You know, I'm sitting next to somebody and they, we start talking. And I'm like, hey, what, what's, what's your life all about? And they start telling me and they're like, oh, well, what do you do? Like, well, I'm a pastor. And then you see it immediately. It's like curtains closed. All right, don't want to talk to him. He's some sort of a religious guy. He's different. He's in a different category. And either he assumes he's better than me or he actually is better than me. I don't want to talk to him. That's what happens. And a lot of people here in the Northeast, like when they heard that we were going to be planting a church, a lot of people said, we don't need another church. Why? Because they're looking at all sorts of buildings around the city. And when they associate church, they associate it with a particular building and maybe with a particular religious group. We have to get this here. This is so important. The trajectory that God puts his people on is is a precursor here. God is using everybody as a part of his mission and it is not limited to a particular building or a particular religious group, is actually supposed to be engaged everywhere in all of life. We see it beginning here, this work of God rebuilding so that the glory of God can be known through the whole world, through all sorts of different people groups. And this is what you see. If you read through the, the rest of chapter three, you see the work of God is engaged with uh, priests and pastors, you know, but also uh, with other people. You, you see like stone workers and masons and uh, businessmen, officials, leaders of the community, community people. You see goldsmiths and perfumers. There's actually 40 different groups of people that are represented in chapter three. And it's a beautiful picture that ultimately gets fulfilled in the people that Jesus sets on mission to go change the world. And we read this in the, in the, the, first, couple of, um, the first couple of followers of Jesus, they wrote about this, about the identity and the mission of the people of God. They wrote it this way. Uh, they said, as you come to him, this is them saying, as you come to Jesus, when you believe in him, when you become followers of Jesus, When you come to him, the living stone that's rejected by humans, but but shows us in God and precious to him, you also, and this is wild, this is wild. You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Did you catch that? Church doesn't happen in a building. You are the building. Church is not a building. You are, you are the mission of God. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, And our purpose is to to go declare to the world who this God is and to participate in his mission, not within the four walls here, but outside in the city, in your workplaces, in your home, in your neighborhood, everywhere that God has already strategically 
place to you. And honestly, this has been our heart from the very beginning. This is one of the reasons why we started this church to begin with. We said, man, if we could start a movement of people to engage this rescue mission beyond the four walls of a religious gathering, we're all about that. We'll give our life to that. We started with $1.50, but, but we were like, we believe that this vision, God, is so much bigger than what we have and the resources we had. And it's so much bigger than some of the religious stuff that we've experienced in the past. Because it does not belong in just a stained glass, white, pasty, tall building with some sort of a steeple. That's not it. We miss it. If we think that church life is all about that, it is a people. It's a people. Because it's all about a relationship between us and God and a rescue mission that he's setting a movement of people on. This is so huge. So out of this, what do we get from this? This is the big idea, okay? You have to, if you get anything today, this is it. God plans to rebuild his kingdom through all of us in everything that we do, everywhere we go. All of us, everywhere, in everything we do. And he's using everybody. Uh, I love this. When, when we uh, were meeting in the Dr. Crisp Elementary School, we'd, we'd drive by it uh, in our van and our kids would look at the school and say, hey, look, there's church. You know, I'm like, all right. You know, still associating it with a particular building, but they're catching the vision. It's not just in a stained glass, tall steeple-like place. No, it's actually done with real people in real life situations that all of us are engaged in on a 24-hour basis. I love that. I love that. That's what I want to be about. In fact, uh, in Ephesians uh, 4, uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 11 through 13, it talks about the religious leaders, people like me, uh, which I kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit when I think about myself as a pastor because, like, I'm not that holy, okay? I'm just a normal guy. Uh, But this this is how the Apostle Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, actually said, this is what my role is. Ready? This is what my role is. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until all of us have reached unity in in the face and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You get that? It's not my work. I'm here to equip you for the work of ministry. And you know where ministry is done? It's done in your home. It's done with your kids. And this week, I was tempted to blow past that. I'm telling you, like when my kids were sick, I was thinking to myself, no, the real work of God, it's, it's to kind of have beef up our groups, you know, or to set like a, a really nice fancy vision for, you know, what God wants to do in our church and our city. Like, you know, it's to meet with particular key people in our church when, and I was like, man, my kids are just an interruption to this right now. And God had to blow up my mind and my heart in that moment. And he's like, you don't get it, do you? My kingdom is right here, right now. Because your kids are a part of my rescue mission. They matter. Parents, I get it. You know, when you're getting that demand every single day and you just get like whine and whine and cry and weep and all that stuff, like it's hard. It's hard work. Parenting's hard work. Can we own that? It's hard. But you have to get this. Every single parenting moment is an opportunity for God's kingdom to be built. And when we look at our kids, we're not just seeing people that we need to get through the day with and survive. We're seeing the next generation of kingdom builders that God is calling us to equip with tools to know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and to then help them to love people all around them at a higher level. 
Man, that's why I love when we have an opportunity as a church to go over to the school next door and to participate in some things like giving backpacks away and school supplies and just like little gifts here and there. I love bringing my kids because I want them to see that all of life is a part of this rescue mission. All of life. Life with our neighbors. Man, it's just getting intentional about it. You you have to get this. There are no sacred versus secular people because everybody is a part of God's work. Secondly, there are no sacred versus secular places. (laughs) Yeah, there are no sacred versus secular places. You have to understand this, like when Jesus hit the ground and he started doing his ministry, where did he do it? He didn't do it in religious gatherings. He did it by the lake where there were fishermen and the fishermen were the people that he called first to be on his team. He did it in the town where there were tax collectors and he said, I want you on my team. In this room right now, he's called the medical professionals to engage in his kingdom rebuilding. He's called the tech geniuses. And I know there are some of you geeks in this room right now. He's called you to rebuild his kingdom. He's called those uh, in the business and finance world to rebuild his kingdom. And we have people in all sorts of sectors of life in various jobs and various places. And you have to know that he has strategically gifted you and placed you where you are for a reason. All of that is to rebuild his kingdom. All of life. Now here's, here's the deal. We just have to start getting intentional. I think a lot of people when they look at church work, they think, oh man, I just need to participate in a lot of religious gatherings. I need to be super religious. I need to start changing my vocabulary to sound more religious. God's like, stop it. <laughs> Please stop. We don't need more religious words. Like it, it confuses the heck out of most of us, okay? What we need is people who are willing to get intentional in the environments they're already in to start sharing the hope with people in average, ordinary, everyday language. So one of the goals that we have as a church is not to to pull you out of the world and to create all sorts of little Christian subcultures and ghettos for you. No, like we want to equip you to start living this out where you already are, but just with more intentionality. So here's kind of practically how it looks, all right? I told you guys I felt like a girly man over the past couple of months. Like I've gotten a massage and uh, I, like there's just been some wacky things uh, that I've, I've been a part of that I'm like, this is just not manly enough, okay? So I, I said, uh, 2018, I wanna put on 10 pounds of man. Uh, so, uh, but I'm like, where do I do that? Um, so my neighbor, uh, he hands me this card that's like, hey, why don't you come work out with me for six free weeks at this gym? And I'm like, yes, you know, I'm gonna go pump some weights and iron. Uh, but the cool thing is like, like instead of just pumping iron or something like that on my own in a particular place, no, no, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get intentional now to know my neighbor. I'm gonna do what I would already do anyway, but I'm gonna do it now with my neighbor. For some of us, we've started playing indoor soccer. It's a hobby that we, we like doing. We would do it anyway, but instead of just doing it with a Christian team and a church team, we said, man, there's other people in this city who need to know the hope of God, so let's invite our coworkers. Let's invite our neighbors to be a part of this team, and so we're doing that. There are stay-at-home moms in this room, and you have like mom gatherings where you, like, you hang out with each other and moms. Like, if you're gonna do that, invite your neighborhood and invite some people that you don't know and who don't know the hope of Jesus to be a part of that. Don't necessarily do things, like add more things to your schedule. Just do what you're already doing with a higher level of intentionality. 
And what we want to do in these group environments for you is to equip you with a framework to see all of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ and start communicating his hope in tangible ways to the people all around, around, around you that you're already hanging with every single day. There's no sacred versus secular people. There's no sacred versus secular places. And there's no sacred versus secular work. I love what the great jazz musician John Coltrane said as he's talking about the the passion and the gift that he was given back in 1950 to articulate how he's using that now for the glory of God. He said, during the year of 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to me to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. And I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. This album, which was a love supreme, is an offering to him, an attempt to say, thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men and women in every good endeavor. First Corinthians 10, 13, uh, 31 put it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, do it all for the glory of God. You are God's work. And he wants to build his kingdom through every one of you, every place that you go. Now the last question for me was just, well, how do we do this? And this is the most amazing part for me. You ready? As we read chapter three, you're, you're gonna, and man, I encourage you guys read through chapter three and it's a, it, otherwise a really long list of boring names and, and occupations and all that. But you see 23 times the words next to him appear. This guy built this gate and then next to him, this guy built that gate and then next to him, this guy built that wall and next to him, this town went and built this wall. Next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him. Do you know what's so powerful about that? is that you don't build the kingdom of God in isolation. There's this weird thought out there in American Christianity that says, man, I'm good if I just got Jesus in me. It's just Jesus in me. He died for me as if I was the only person in this world. He still would have died for me. So it's just Jesus in me. And that's not what Jesus had in mind. He set a community together to do this arm in arm, to encourage each other, to build each other up, to spur each other on, and to equip each other to live out this kingdom at a higher level. God wants you next to somebody else. He does not want you to do this in isolation. And some of you, you felt lonely. You felt like, I don't know how in the world I can engage this. I do not want you to feel lonely anymore. Our vision for 2018 is twofold. The words that I kept getting in my mind as I'm just praying and asking God to give us direction for this year are twofold. Family and repurposing everything. God wants our church to build family together where when we get to know each other and actually share life and do life together, man, our life is gonna be richer, fuller, more meaningful and more purposeful than we'd ever thought possible, but we've got to build those relationships And then secondly, he wants to repurpose everything that you do, whether you're cleaning diapers or washing dishes or punching in code at work, repurpose all of it for the glory of God. And so that's why we have these environments called groups for you guys to get involved in so that you can get to know each other and you can build relationships with each other and and cast a vision and create a framework for you guys to be able to do this at a higher level. And I'm so excited about this. We're launching it this week. And just in a few seconds here, we're gonna go back and we're gonna uh, uh, get to know some of the group leaders. I encourage you guys, do not leave today without meeting these group leaders and finding out what they're studying during the week because it's for the purpose of of, uh, getting to know each other 
reading about God's framework and what he wants to do to equip us for his work in this world and, uh, and then to, to just challenge us to go do that. So in just a second, we're gonna go do that. But you have to understand this. The big idea is this. God is not using a particular place and he's not using a particular set of religious people. He's using you, all of you, all of you to rebuild his kingdom everywhere you go. Let's pray. Jesus, my prayer today is that you would give us a framework to understand this. Give us hearts, God, to see it. And I pray, God, that we would literally go home and as we put our car in the driveway and we watch our neighbors walk into their home, that we would see an opportunity. An opportunity to say, hey, how are you doing? And not just to stop at the surface level of good, how are you? but to actually know our neighbors, what they're struggling with, what they're going through, and share with them the hope that you alone offer. I pray that we would not just see our jobs and our weekly routines at our jobs as something to get through so we can get a paycheck and somehow build a a higher kingdom so we can live at a more comfortable, luxurious, leisurely life. But we would see that every one of us are gifted in unique ways to meet specific needs and to meet different people that the rest of us can't. That unless we have people in every profession around this room, we cannot reach this whole city. So God, I pray that you'd capture our minds